The theme for this talk this evening is spontaneity. And I'll try to be as spontaneous as I can <laughs> while I'm giving the talk. We'll see how it goes. Huh? So one of the main insights that arises when you come to re retreat is the insight into impermanence. Because when you look at a day, I mean, you have lots of time, lots of moments in a day to pay attention. You can see how your experience keeps changing. I mean, if you look back at the day today and all the mind moments that you had, I mean, there were a lot of mind moments, a lot of things that happened today, and yet, where are they? Where are they? They're all gone. You know, as one of my teachers used to say, he said, they're back there with Alexander the Great. You know, where are they? So how many experiences have you had today that you haven't been able to hold on to? You couldn't make stay as hard as you tried, and I'm sure there were a few experiences that arose where you would have loved to have them continue, but they didn't. The insight into impermanence is so important because if we really see this clearly, that there is nothing that we can hold on to, it helps us to stop controlling our experience. We just stop. We see that that effort to try to manipulate and make our experiences a certain way is to no good, to no avail. Every experience we have is going to pass away, no matter how much we try to hold on to it or to make them happen the way we want. They continually keep eluding us, like sand running through our fingers. We can't hold on. This is from an ancient Buddhist text. All things conditioned are unstable, impermanent, fragile in essence as an unbaked pot, like something borrowed or a city founded on sand. They last a short while only. They are inevitably destroyed like plaster washed off in the rains, like the sandy bank of a river. They are conditioned and their true nature is frail. They are like the flame of a lamp which rises suddenly and as soon goes out. They have no power of endurance like the wind or like foam, unsubstantial, essentially feeble. The sage knows what is true reality and sees all conditioned things as empty and powerless. So, as we see this happen again and again, it starts to reinforce the letting go. We stop holding on and we're left right where we are because we see there's nothing else we can do. We have to just start where we are, be where we are. And from this point of view, nothing 
really needs to be any different. Because in a way, how could it be? Nothing really needs to be any different. And we say this to you in the instructions, in the talks. We say, let things be. Just let things be. So saying that nothing needs to be any different, if we take those words in, nothing needs to be any different, it's actually very profound when we take it in and let it sink into our consciousness. What does it really mean? Nothing needs to be any different. Because usually the first thing that will happen is the mind will pick that up and move it in time. It'll seem as if nothing needed to be different in the past, in the present, or the future. And it can imply some sense of inaction uh, or passive acceptance. Know that all we need to do is accept and that's it. Like the whole practice is about acceptance, acceptance. And I think this is a limited view. When I first started, very, very beginnings of my practice, I remember uh, even just before, when I started to have some awareness about, or questioning, I would say, about the meaning of this existence, I decided that that was the answer that this mind that I got and this body that I got, this personality I got, was it. You know, sort of like what you see is what you get, either like it or lump it, and uh, get used to it. And, <laughs> and that the work really was just coming into a place of acceptance. And that was kind of a, it was kind of sorrowful to think about it that way, that there was nothing I could do, get used to it. But fortunately, as I started practicing the Dharma and listening to the teachings, I found out that there's more to it than that. It's not about just getting used to it because there's nothing we can do, even though nothing needs to be different. You know, this is when the teachings start to sort of play games with us. They become rather paradoxical. So that statement really, I don't think, is about time. I don't think it's really about the past, the present, or the future, when we talk about nothing needing to be different. Because actually, the past is already dead. There's not much we can do about that anyhow. It's already gone. The future really isn't born. The future moment hasn't arrived yet. So the future is just an idea that hasn't appeared. And even our present, you know, when we talk about the present, it's so filled with trying to change it, trying to make it different. I wonder if even the sense of present eludes us. So can we really talk about past, present, or future? I think what really is communicated in that statement with nothing needs to be different is that nothing can be different. Nothing can be different. That, in fact, we cannot change or control the circumstances that have arrived in this instant. The way that the conditions have 
come together in this moment, in this configuration, is outside of our control. It is as it is. Whatever is happening, whatever has come together in this moment, has come together due to the conditions of the past. This happens because of that. You know, like the food that we had for lunch, it arrived on our table in that particular configuration because of all the conditions that came before it. You know, people delivering the food to the center, people in the kitchen who were capable and who had ideas of thinking about what kind of food they wanted to prepare. And uh, we had ovens and we had pots and um, we have people here to eat it. You know, all these conditions have to, had to be in place before that food could arrive on your table. I mean, we can look at, you know, myriad kind of examples. You know, we look outside and there's no leaves on the trees. That's not a random circumstance. <laughs> you know, there's no leaves on the trees because it's cold and it's, the temperatures are too low. And that's been happening over a number of months. And then, you know, the sap runs a certain way in the trees and it causes the leaves to turn color and drop off. And just about this time, you start to see the buds appearing again on the trees because the sap is starting to rise again. You know, it all happens for a reason. This happens because of that. Things are as they are because of these conditions. So in this instant, things are as they are. And when our attention slows down enough, we can actually see this. We can, we can begin to grok it. You know that wonderful word, grok. We begin to understand this. I'm remembering an example that one of my teachers used a long time ago, and I really didn't understand it so well when he used it, but I remembered it today, so I hope you can understand it. <laughs> he said, this is like, you know, when we talk about that there's not much we can do or there's nothing we can do about the instant, uh, the conditions in this instant. He said it's like sitting on a train that's moving, but sitting backwards and looking out the window and seeing where you have already been. Rather than sitting forward and looking into the future, it's like we're sitting backwards moving into the future, but looking at the conditions that are happening. Not much we can do about it because it's just appearing. And so mindfulness receives the moment. Mindfulness is a receptive awareness that receives the conditions of the moment in its pristine state, just as it is before anything happens to the conditions before they're tainted. It's like receiving a plate of food at a restaurant. We go into the restaurant and we look at the menu and we say, yeah, I'll have that. That looks good. I think that'll taste good. And then we have an expectation about what that food's going to be like and it arrives. There it is. It's on the table. We look at it. We smell it. And you have a response. 
Now, it seems that we can't really separate that response so much from the arrival of those conditions, yet we can start to break this down so we can understand it. But there's not much we can do when that plate arrives on the table. It just arrives. There it is. It's like life in a way. Something arrives on the table. And after the plate arrives, and the plate can be a metaphor for our experience, any experience that arises in a moment, then our response kicks in. And that's when the trouble starts. Our conditioned habits in that response begin to take over. And these habits are controlled by the past, as everything else, conditioned by our past influences of, our, of uh, how, how we were raised and who we knew and our families and where we went to school and how much money we had and what color our skin is and what neighborhood we lived in. All these things condition our responses. And like a plate of food arrives on the table, it doesn't meet our expectations. And all kinds of things can, can happen. We could imagine sitting in the restaurant, a plate of food arrives, and we don't like it. We could sit there with smoldering irritation, not say anything to anybody, just smolder with unhappiness and discontentment. We might then sink into self-pity. <laughs> this always happens to me. I never get the food that I want to order at a restaurant. I've actually had that experience. It's amazing I could drop into self-pity at a restaurant because I don't like my food. But that can happen too. We can get into self-righteous anger. Depending on how strong that habit is, we can call the waiter over and start screaming and yelling at him and disturbing the whole restaurant. We may just drop into kind of numbness Confusion, you know, not supposed to say anything about anything. Just be a bit frozen in that. Or we might just have an attitude being very easygoing and unbothered and quite fine about it, if we're lucky. <laughs> but without awareness, without mindfulness, we're caught in the habit pattern itself and it just gets acted out. So the anger takes over, or the numbness takes over, or the uh, self-pity takes over. And that becomes the totality of our experience. It's not even so much me at that time. It's just the pattern itself has the power to begin acting out. We lose awareness, and we become, we, we become overcome. In the, in the pattern itself, and we feel the suffering of that, the pattern in the mind. This is a, a passage from um, Yogacara Sutta. Some children were playing beside a river they made castles of sand, and each child defended his castle and said, this one is mine. They kept their castles separate and would not allow any mistake upon about which was whose. 
when the castles were all finished, one child kicked over someone else's castle and completely destroyed it. The owner of the castle flew into a rage, pulled the other child's hair, struck him with his fist and bawled out, he has spoiled my castle. Come along, all of you, and help me to punish him as he deserves. The others all came to his help. They beat the child with a stick and then stamped on him as he lay on the ground. Then they went on playing in their, cat, in their sand castles, each saying, this is mine. No one else may have it. Keep away. Don't touch my castle. But evening came, it was getting dark, and they all thought they ought to be going home. No one now cared what became of his castle. One child stamped on his, another pushed his over with both hands. Then they turned away and went back, each to his home. These patterns of mind become so strong in the mind. And we think they are me or I. We don't see the, the power of these patterns when there's no awareness, when there's no mindfulness of them. But when I use the example of receiving food that we don't like, it's actually not such a big deal. But what if what lands on your table is a diagnosis from the doctor? He says you have invasive breast cancer or throat cancer. What if that's what lands on your table? Or I just got an email from a friend who said she's all set for a home birth with a local midwife and her amniotic sac broke six weeks early. You know, what if that lands on your table? Then our conditioned responses matter. It matters what arises in that instant. But when we say nothing can be different, every instant there is a new arrival in every moment, is there nothing I can do? Is there nothing I can do? Am I just supposed to get used to it? Like I thought when, you know, before I started my meditation practice, are we just a bundle of habits? You know, it's sort of like practice acceptance and then you die. You know? Hopefully not. Because if that was the case, we would all be in trouble. There would be no possibility of transformation in our life. And there is transformation. There is a possibility of transformation, and that's what these teachings are about. That's what the path is about. That's what we're practicing. Practicing transformation, transformation of consciousness. So how does this transformation happen? What do we do? How do we participate in this? The simple answer is fairy dust. It's like, yes, Virginia, there is fairy dust. And I'm not joking. It's sort of like the fairy dust is what is called wisdom. It's one of my, 
one of my other teachers used that analogy for wisdom. He said, there's a little fairy dust that we can drop in our experience. And that is wisdom. Because these teachings are about the cultivation of wisdom. So as we're sitting on the train, looking at what's going by, the conditions are configuring and coming together, when we are present and the mind is uncluttered and we're not blinded by its patterns of reactivity and confusion, we can see what is going by. We can see what's going by. We're not just blinded by it. We're not overcome by it. When there's some space in the mind to see what is going by, what arises in that space is what's called discriminating wisdom. Discriminating wisdom. And rather, being a, rather than being a victim of our mind, that our mind is just kind of taking us by the tail and whipping us around wherever it wants to go. You know, sometimes it's likened to a, a monkey who is swinging in the, tr in the banana trees and, you know, it's overwhelmed with all the wonderful bananas and saying, wow, look at that banana. Oh, I think I'll have that banana. And it's just swinging from banana to banana and getting a bit uh, dizzy and overwhelmed by its abundance. Rather than just being a victim of our mind, we can actually choose where to go. Choose what to follow. Choose what to pay attention to. Mindfulness is the clear seeing that discriminates and knows what to follow. We might say that mindfulness is like the inner brakes. It gives us a moment to slow down. We slow down this process. It gives a moment to slow down this momentum of our habit so that we can actually add a little of the fairy dust and change the course of our path. Now, if we see ourselves starting to what arises in a particular moment is this configuration of anger, and we see it clearly, we may be able to just stop for an instant rather than following its path. The wisdom manifests as the intention to let go of the habits that take us to these destinations that lead us to pain. The wisdom manifests as that intention to keep us from dropping in, into deeper and deeper places of sorrow and grief and self-pity, into craving and attachment and anger and cruelty. Wisdom manifests as the intention. But we need to reflect on that for a moment because we're talking about intention. It's not necessarily going to change the outcome of the experience. It's not a magic wand. It doesn't mean just because I am mindful in that moment and I have some fairy dust in that moment that the anger dis dissipates, disappears. Intention means that the mind inclines in a particular direction. 
And the wisdom inclines the mind in a wholesome direction, in a direction that's going to lead to more possibility of fulfillment and contentment and freedom. In my very early days, when I was sitting, uh, I remember one time when I was sitting a three-month retreat here in, in this, in this uh, meditation hall and in this retreat center, I remember how critical my mind was. And I remember in those early days, I had a f- number of friends, close friends, who were sitting the retreat with me. Early days when the three-month retreats were just really getting going. And I remember being so critical of my friends. It's like everything they did, I had a judgment for. You know, I remember one time my, my one friend was, would sit for long periods, you know, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and I'd be so critical. God, he's just sitting there just so he can look good, you know, just so people will think he's such a good yogi. He's probably not even mindful at all, you know, just spacing out, just getting tired. You know, and I would just see my mind just jump from one friend to the next, you know, just being so critical of them. And I really wondered whether I just hated my friends, you know. I just didn't really like my friends at all at that time because I didn't really have that much understanding of how my mind was working. One time I was sitting in here uh, during the... was through through... Breakfast. I came in just after breakfast during the work period, and I was sitting wanting to do some meditation um, during the work period, but during the work period, somebody comes in here and cleans the meditation hall. And so I was sitting very quietly, and my friend came in and started, uh, plugged in the vacuum cleaner and started vacuuming. And I remember being so critical. I was like, can't he see that I'm sitting here trying to meditate? And he's vacuuming. He's doing that just to make me irritated. You know, he's doing that just to get me back. Just so critical, so critical. But then I found out that it wasn't my friends. It wasn't my friends that I was angry at or critical of. It was just my mind. I just had that kind of a mind that I was doing the same thing to myself. I was turning the same kind of judgment and criticism back towards myself. And then I began to see how my mind kept moving to the same point of fixation again and again where it would get caught in this particular reactivity and that this was the habit, the habit of of getting caught in that particular judgment. And when I understood it, when I saw it and began to understand it, I could see that I didn't necessarily need to follow that. I didn't need to let that increase and get reinforced. That it had just led to more pain and sorrow for myself and for my friends. It didn't lead to more fulfillment. And that this understanding was the movement of wisdom. Not to follow that. And then following that idea that I shouldn't get caught up in my criticism and my judgment, if I allowed that wisdom to grow, that's what I should follow. 
that's what I should allow to increase. Then there would be the possibility of a transformation of that habit in my mind. Strengthening the intention, as we strengthen that intention of mind to influence a wholesome outcome, is not necessarily going to change right away. It's a very important point, and we don't know when it's going to change. It's a misunderstanding that I see arise in the practice for people again and again, when people think, if I'm mindful, it should stop. <laughs> if I'm aware of it, it should stop. Yet we see that how many times we can just witness ourselves being caught up in a habit that we cannot influence to change in any particular time period, whether it's uh, cigarette smoking or uh, getting angry at your partner or um, not meditating in the day, whatever it is. We watch ourselves do it, eat that piece of chocolate cake for the fourth time in the day. You know? But we can't stop it. In this case, the habit is stronger than the awareness. The awareness still does not have the strength. We don't have the inner strength of awareness to cut through that habit. But yet, as we pay attention and we practice, and influence that intention again and again, we develop the strength of that awareness, and finally, it cuts through. It cuts through. And this is what we can see in our practice, that these habits do fall away. They don't persist forever. We do break through. For myself, I can see that I don't judge my friends anymore. I'm not critical in the way that I was in the past, but rather what I see more often of the time is the arising of compassion or empathy for what I see in my friends. And seeing this condition arise in my mind and when I see it arise in others as well is it inspires faith in the practice and it strengthens the, sense, it strengthens the motivation for the practice. And it strengthens the sense of urgency in the practice because we see the possibility of transformation and freedom. A few weeks ago, I was teaching a retreat in Washington, Washington State, and I was, uh, there was a, a, an elderly woman on the retreat and she came to me in an interview, and she wanted to uh, talk about her resistance to practice. And she said that for years she was held back from getting involved with Vipassana meditation because she was concerned that Vipassana meditation was going to strengthen her detachment. It would strengthen her being the observer of her experience, and that she didn't want to be any more detached. She didn't want to feel any more rigid in her experience than she already did because she grew up English and she felt like she was felt quite suppressed in herself and really wanted more of an experience of spontaneity, of ease. And she was really afraid that the practice was going to make her more rigid. And so we talked about this and 
she talked about this tight ball that rested in her heart, that she, where she felt quite rigid in herself. And so I talked about how the practice isn't really one at all about separating or moving out of experience and cutting off and becoming more detached. But actually, in my experience, it really was more of one of leaning into experience, meeting experience where it was happening, not away. So I asked her to do that right as we were sitting there together. And I said, lean into your experience right now. Do you experience any gap? Do you feel any detachment or separation? And she said, yes. What I'm aware of now is that I feel this protective layer around my heart where it didn't, doesn't feel OK to move into experience. And as she was talking about that, she actually started to feel, yeah, well, this protective layer has is, is been, is been quite useful. It's been quite helpful. It's, it's helped me to function in the world. It's helped me to be more, more able to uh, be, the, be the way I wanted to be in the world. And as she was talking, she felt much more caring for herself. And some compassion arose, and she actually felt that she was OK, even with this tight ball in her heart. And what I pointed out to her was it was actually the habit of her mind that told her that she had to get rid of that tight feeling in her heart before she could be spontaneous, before she could be free. That her mind kept fixating on that particular sensation and make it into a problem. This is who I am. I'm really a suppressed person. I feel very rigid in myself, and I'm unable to be spontaneous. And her, her attention would keep going to that view, to that sensation which gave rise to that view. And it was the habit, I pointed out to her that it was the habit, it was the fixation of her mind which blocked her being able to see herself, blocked being able to see herself in her totality because her mind kept narrowing around that one piece. The interesting thing that was sort of a side thing that happened was in my room where I was staying, somebody had put a bouquet of uh, a dozen red roses. And on each rose, somebody had tied ribbons of purple and red ribbon streamers that streamed down from all the roses and curled the ends of them so that there were 12 beautiful red roses with 24 purple and red long curled streamers. And I don't know if you can envision that, but my first response was, why do these roses, why would anybody think these roses, which are so beautiful in themselves, would need all these red and purple streamers put around them? And did they think that it actually made the roses look more beautiful or something? You know, I mean, it, in England, there's the expression, over the top. You know, it was totally over the top. And so I picked up one of these roses while this woman was in my room, and I said, here, this is for you. I said, but we're going to take these red and purple streamers off because you don't need those. It's extra. 
Let the rose by itself, in its simplicity, in its remind you of your beauty. It doesn't need anything extra, but it is beautiful just the way it is, just as you are. So this view keeps reinforcing the habit that keeps us locked into a feeling of being in a prison cell. And the interesting thing is that we keep finding evidence that we're not free, or that I'm not free, or that there's a sense of being stuck, rigid, enclosed. There was a woman in an interview today who was the main caretaker, is the main caretaker for her mother. And she was talking about how her mother had many difficulties and would complain a lot and feel very negative about her experience. And the woman saw that she was constantly lecturing in her mind to her mother, trying to get her mother to see how much she had to be grateful for. But her mom couldn't see it. And then she'd get upset at her mom and feel frustrated at her mom because she would just keep talking about how bad her life is and how negative things were. And they just, she just found herself getting upset and frustrated and, and, and caught in this rigid dynamic, only seeing what was wrong, only seeing the fault. And then she realized that she could stop fixating on the fault, but rather really focus on her mother's good qualities, on her mother's beautiful qualities, and see those as well. Let the mind expand, let the mind open up, and really see her mom. And this was so liberating. She saw that this response was the response that was going to bring more happiness. Happiness for herself, and happiness for her mother, happiness for the relationship. A liberating, a liberating view. So the mind stops going to something that is perceived as a problem. This is the practice of letting go, the practice of letting go, of, of seeing and acknowledging these places where our mind is getting caught, fixed in these views. And as we practice the letting go, this develops a, an elasticity of the mind, a mind that is, does not feel bound by these rigid views these rigid habits of mind. A mind that is not caught in these struggles and conflicts is called an equanimous mind. The Buddha said, a mind like this is purified, bright, malleable, wieldly, radiant like refined gold. And he uses the metaphor of refined gold as when a goldsmith takes gold, refines it in a furnace, he can make any ornament he wishes out of it because it's pliable, it's workable. And the mind is like that. When the mind is not bound up in these fixed views, it is free. And in its freedom, it is creative. Anything's possible. Everything's possible. Creativity runs through it. 
spontaneously, freely. It is the nature of a free mind. My friend who I was talking with in Washington really feared that her practice would make her rigid. But the only thing that could make her rigid is her perception of herself and her practice. Her perception of the tight ball in her chest that had to go to, be, to make her free. It was the constricting view itself that interfered with her feeling her vitality. So as we drop down, drop down out of the thinking mind, is anything stuck, really? Anything stuck here in the universe? Before this woman left my room, she asked, she just looked at me and she said, are you able to be spontaneous in your practice? And I responded, I said, well, the truth is that spontaneity isn't really an issue because I, I see that everything is already spontaneous. Everything is already free. I don't perceive anything as being stuck. And if, there's, if nothing's stuck, then there's no problem that needs to be fixed. There's no problem that needs to be fixed. When I started, way long ago when I started the practice, I remember how badly I wanted to be spontaneous. I just this feeling of being free and spontaneous in my life. I felt, again, so bound up like this woman was experiencing. And how liberating to see that nothing needs to be different. That everything is already free. When I was visiting a friend in Switzerland, in Bern, he took me downtown to the center of town. And he showed me this very, very old and beautiful Swiss clock that was on the, one of the buildings in the center of town outside. Very big, big clock, probably one of the biggest and oldest uh, man, uh, handmade clocks. And he pointed out how all the behind, you couldn't see it, but there, behind the clock were all these gears that were all running, all, all connected that were running the whole clock. One gear would run another gear that would run another gear. And when certain gears would hit certain places, then a, a little man would come out of a, of a door and a little puppet man would make some movement and then would, after a minute or two, go back in. And then the gear would keep moving and another puppet would come out of another box. And just this amazing configuration, all run by these gears that were all interconnected. And he pointed out to me that if there was a stone, a pebble that got caught in one of the gears, the whole thing would shut down, would stop the whole thing, because everything had to, everything was connected to everything else to keep the whole thing moving. But with one pebble, the whole thing would shut down. And he pointed out that it was exactly the same. <laughs> in the universe, 
that everything is interconnected. Everything is moving and shifting together. And the only way it could stop <laughs> is if there was a stone <laughs> that was put in that the whole thing would shut down. But everything would shut down. The lights would go off. No more universe. <laughs> but there is no stone. It's not possible. So all the gears are working perfectly. Everything's turning, everything else, and everything's moving accordingly, according to plan. Nothing's interfering. Nothing's stopping. The stone or the pebble is only the idea that there's a stone or the idea that there's a problem. If we remove the idea, I wonder if everything isn't free. Everything is unstuck. Everything is quite fine in some mysterious way. So can you sense that freedom now? Can you sense that freedom here? And in sensing that, can we pay respect to that intelligence that is expressing itself in this moment? Quite mysteriously, quite outside of our control. This is from a 20th century shaman woman, Eskimo. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving me like a weed in a river. The sky and the strong wind have moved the spirit inside me till I am carried away, trembling with joy. So when we let go, we let go of these ideas that keep us feeling bound, then everything in the world becomes free for us. I'm going to close the talk this evening with this poem by Evelyn Gil I uh, don't know her second name. I can't pronounce it. Evelyn. <laughs> Clouds are flowing in the river. Waves are flying in the sky. Life is laughing in a pebble. Does a pebble ever die? Flowers grow out of the garbage. Such a miracle to see. What seems dead and what seems dying makes for butterflies to be. Life is laughing in a pebble, flowers bathe in morning dew, dust is dancing in my footsteps, and I wonder who is who. Clouds are flowing in the river, clouds are drifting in my tea on a never-ending journey. What a miracle to be. Let's sit together for a few minutes. 